0: Hey, everyone. This episode of the podcast is a bit different. It's a group call with the legendary Motown producers Bob Olson and Russ Tarana. This interview was the first time they'd spoken in 40 years, so I mostly just left them to it to catch up and tell stories. Enjoy. Everybody wants to know about Motown.
1: Oh, they want to know about it. And and it was interesting learning about Nashville, because it's a case of basically the musicians outsmarted the suits the major labels <laughs> I, mean, I mean their their big trick was they they had a group of musicians who were
2: re- really
1: good at memorizing
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so somebody could come in a music publisher or, or a producer could come in play them a song once and they had it <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. and the ones that couldn't work quite that well, created Uh this number system that basically writing down the chord numbers. Uh And the the big advantage is that they could change keys on a dime. (laughs) And back then the artist typically was brought in off the road and they had a week to do an album And they are recording live. Absolutely. And the difference between Nashville and the rest of the country was when they wanted to change keys everywhere else, you had to hand the scores to the arranger and to a copyist Mm
3: -hmm.
1: (laughs) and wait a half hour to change keys. (laughs) Whereas these guys could do it at the drop of a hat. Wow. And so they were the secret weapon of, of yeah. RCA and Columbia and Decca. Uh,
2: the national, the national, the Punk Brothers, huh?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really interesting. It. it uh...
2: yeah. But he wants to hear about Motown.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, please go on as many tangents as you want to. Um, <laughs> maybe both you could talk a bit about how you got started at Motown and kind of your first days there meeting everyone?
2: Um, who, me?
0: Yeah, you can start, yeah.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, well, I was in a band. We were called the Sunliners, And the band eventually became Rare Earth. But I got out of the band just before that. And when I was in the band and we were playing the clubs and everything, I went to school and got a degree in electronics. And um, because I thought, I'm not going to be in the band the rest of my life. You know? <laughs> And uh, so, uh, leaving the band, I'm trying to decide what I'm going to do with this, with my life. And so I went oh, down to Motown to see what's going on there, because we recorded in their studios before they were a closed deal. So, uh, you know, so I knew, you know, some of the people there. And uh, they wanted to hire me. So I said fine, but I was under contract with Golden World Studios when I was with the band. And um, remember Ralph Seltzer? Ralph. Mm-hmm. I was meeting with him and he says for order for them to hire me, I'd have to get out of my recording contract with Golden World. So I said, Yeah, no problem. So I immediately went over to the studio there at Golden World and uh, told them that I left the band and that Motown would to hire me as an engineer. And Ed Wingate says, the owner of the place, he says, Oh, we could use you here. <laughs> so um uh, he wanted me to you know, be the engineer there. And I said, Yeah, sure, why not? So I Went back to Motown and explained that they wanted to hire me there and since it's under contract they knew me and this and that and I just didn't want to brush you off and whatever you know so I became an engineer at, at uh, Golden World and uh, about three months later you know, I was doing all the sessions and and um, I was really busy and Motown buys Golden World so they wanted me to stay down because I knew that studio so I that's how I got to Motown <laughs> Through the back door. <laughs> but that was the start of it. That was the whole start of it.
0: What about you, Bob?
1: Yeah, well, my story is more bizarre than that. <laughs> 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 I took radio drama in the seventh grade, well, the eighth grade through the through high school every year. And my dream was to go into radio. But I got a tour of WXYZ, the ABC-owned station in Detroit. And the guy told me that I had to have a college degree in order to work for ABC. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have anything remotely resembling the kind of money to get a college degree. (laughs) So I started looking around, hanging out in studios. And I hung out. One of the places I hung out was United Sound. Mm, yeah. And Danny Dallas, uh, I, I I actually got through a year of music literature at a little college called Olivet in Central Michigan. And I wanted—I was hoping I could get a summer job so i went to united and danny dallas says i'm sure as a joke why don't you go to motown i heard they're hiring <laughs> so i go to motown i had barely heard about it i had almost no idea of what it was or anything my my i was into classical music and big band music and not particularly into rock and roll. And so I went in, and they brought me in. They sat me down at a desk, which I later learned was Smokey Robinsons. (laughs) (laughs) And they handed me an employment application and an IQ test. (laughs) (laughs) So I (laughs) I filled those out, gave them back. And they called in Mike McLean, and he gave me a tour of the studio. And this was in, would have been, what, the summer of 1964. So he gives me a tour of the studio. I see the one-inch eight track, and my jaw hits the floor. (laughs) Never seen anything like that before. And then he showed me the cutting room. And the job that appealed to me the most was was cutting, mastering. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, in the process, I kind of hit it off with Mike McLean because I was into classical and jazz, and that's what he was into. And so he started inviting me over to parties at his apartment and we hung out a bunch and in the what I guess it would be the early fall of nineteen sixty five they offered me a job as a cutting trainee. Hmm. And so I jumped on that. Meanwhile this was the days of the draft. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was sweating. And so I got got into Wayne State and was trying to be a student there and trying to work at Motown at the same time. And it just totally wasn't working. So they, they wound up firing me in February of 66. Mm. So I went back to Olivet for a semester and then went to... Uh, Michigan State and met some incredible, incredibly bright people. Because I I was always the kind of person, I wanted to be the dumbest person in the room. You know, I always wanted to just surround myself with brilliant people. And I met some at Michigan State and wound up flunking out. (laughs) We had a great time, but (laughs) I I wasn't very enthusiastic about my music literature program. And I wasn't a good enough violinist to do an instrument thing. So I flunked out and I thought, well, okay, now what do I do? Well, my best friend in high school went to MIT Mm -hmm. in Boston. So I moved to Boston and fairly quickly got a job at a studio called Ace Recording. Was run by Milton and Herbie Yakis, and Her Milton's son Shelley had just left and gone to work at A and R in New York, and so they were they were interested in me, and so I were, they started me, you know, doing tape copies and that kind of thing, and kind of slowly getting to know the place. And I think I did one session there actually. And about a week later, I get a call from Bob Dennis at Motown. Oh, hey, they want to bring me back to Detroit because they, they had replaced me with Larry Miles. Oh. And Larry had, as part of the departure of Holland Dozer Holland, Larry, the, the cutting system had been moved from technical engineering to recording engineering. And Cal Harris had, Larry wanted to do mixing and recording. And so Cal Harris moved him into that and they brought me back to do cutting. And then a few months after that, Bob Dennis quit and went to work for Holland and Dozier. And at that point, the management of cutting was taken over by Joe Atkinson, who had been hired from Atlantic, had had been one of their mono mastering engineer, Cut all their blistering hot singles. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, working with Joe and Joe went crazy with with how in the hell can you not have a secretary doing this and that and so forth and so they They brought in a secretary and the whole thing and and for me, I mean, the way they were doing cutting was fanatical. <laughs> I mean, you, you were trying to absolutely nail the most level you could get, and if you could figure out a way to EQ something you had to put what you did on the label and they'd send that back to the mixer and then the mixer would include that in another mix. They wanted a tape that would go across flat. Uh. (laughs) Now, of course, nobody put that kind of energy and money into singles. Nobody but Motown. Mm -hmm. And I finally figured out that that's because Motown was was a management and publishing company that happened to have a label. It was all about advancing the artists. And the artists were not charged for the studio time. Okay. So it was a, I mean, it was brilliant. I, when I got involved with, with other labels after leaving, <laughs> I was going, oh my God. People are idiots. <laughs> and I'm not sure. The de- I mean, I didn't totally appreciate it until I saw what was going on with other labels.
2: <laughs> and
1: I honestly think Barry Gordy is the, is the smartest person to ever go in the record business. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean,
1: light years. I mean, yeah. I mean, he'd have been president of the United States if he hadn't
2: have been black. That's right. You know, he is he, he a very smart man. Yeah. He, he knew how to uh, get the best out of people. And the way he did that was once he got to know the person's capabilities, then he just turned loose. You know, just go for it. You know, whereas you get some of these other managers, they say, you know, it's my way or the highway, you know, and they could lose out on a lot of stuff. But he was the total opposite of he. I remember yeah. one time, um, with Frank Wilson. And uh, we had just finished the session. That it was a vocal session or something like that. And you know how we made a quick copy for them at the end of the session so they could study what they did. You know, yeah. it wasn't really a good mix. It was just a rough mix. And we saw Barry, and Frank says, hey, I, I want to play you this way that I've been working on. And Barry says, no, I don't want to hear that right now. He says, I want you to go finish it. And once you get the mix that you really like, then play it for me. And I thought, well, that's really smart because... He didn't want to throw any his way of thinking off, you know, yeah. Frank. You know, he didn't want to get involved and maybe say something that would distract what he was trying to accomplish. Yeah, because it was a rough mix anyway. So you're not really getting the full picture, you know. I thought that was very smart, you know, very smart man, very smart man. Yeah, and he yeah. loved involved and, and uh, everything with it, you know, especially he loved to mix. Yeah, I did count countless. So, count yeah. of, Mixing sessions with him, you know, and we had a ball. Him and I, we we challenge each other, and we you know we were just having yeah, fun. Yeah, well, that was his thing. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I guess he's creating working we'll people yeah. against each other. Mm-hmm. You always had somebody checking
2: you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it was really funny, though. If you're working, go ahead. Um, uh, what's his name? Roger Campbell is his, his um, head of security. Would come in. You know, after a couple of hours we've been working and he says excuse me Mr. Gordy but you know we have to leave now you got this meeting and blah 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 and Barry's attitude would just go oh god the street lights are on I have to go home <laughs> and he was did not want to have to leave and go beside he says I have to go meet with the college boys you know he'd just rather be there working on music you know and, and uh, that's where his heart was but he had a company to run and yeah. you know,
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. The, the one unique thing about it is, for the most part, producers were not allowed to be that involved with the mixing.
2: Uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And
1: I think Norman Woodfield's about the only one that, mm-hmm. that pretty much did his own mixing. I worked with Norman
2: a lot. Norman was a very creative person. Yeah. Um, I had so much fun with him. You know, I mean, the, the guy was—he would when I was in LA, he'd stop by the studio if he was driving by just to say hi. Come to my office, we'd sit around and bullshit for a while, you know. And, and um, he, he was just a—he was a heck of a guy, you know, very very into the, into what he was doing, and uh, he just had that sixth sense of what to get out of people, you know. Yeah. Good good, good person good person
1: and that's the thing about a producer i mean today these kids are thinking oh yeah they they think that engineering is production yeah and they don't understand it. no it's directing people
2: that's right getting
1: performances out of people
2: i remember one time i was leaving the studio about eight o'clock at night has been there since morning you know i was tired and norman was in another studio doing he wanted to do this mix you know i forget who the artist was and I just ran into him just as I was leaving. He says, oh, can you do me a favor? He says, can you come in and at least get the sound together for me? I'm mean, having a hard time just getting the sound I want. He says, oh, Norman, I'm tired. He says, oh, come on, and just take a minute. So I go in there and I got the sound together for him. It took a few minutes. you know. I says, okay, how's that? He says, yeah, it's fine. I said, but do me one more favor. I says, no, what? He just make one pass for me so I'll have something to reference against. Just do me a quick mix, you know, just so I have a reference. So I said, okay, so I did that. By the time it was about 9 o'clock at night, and I left. I got there the next morning, and Norman was still there. (laughs) I said, you've been here all night? He says, yeah. He says, but I'm through. I says, oh, did you get what you want? He says, yeah, it was your mix. (laughs) Well, that's an old story. (laughs) I mean, there are so many stories of that happening. But I was when I did them. It was just just putting something together for them, you know. And it was a good tune, so I enjoyed doing that. You know, you know, it took five minutes, whatever. You know, he says I couldn't beat it, so I says I'm going to go with that. I forget what song it was, but you know, that was Norman.
1: Yeah, well, I should tell you the compliment. Was a bunch of the British producers came through, and one of them was Andrew Oldham. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. He told me that you were the only mixer he'd ever seen that was better than Bob Claremont. Oh, really?
2: That's...
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> How was that for a compliment? <laughs> wow, that's flattering. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... I loved mixing, though. That was my favorite thing. I love doing the mixing because you know, it was creative. And... It's just uh, I don't know, you know. I'd get into the track and see what I could work with the track. You know, looking for dynamics. I could change these dynamics here. You know, maybe I'll feature the guitars in the verse and then go to the keyboards in the chorus, so it'd be a change. You know, and just making the track interesting. You know, and then you just take that voice and just ride it like uh, like you're surfing. You know, and get that level and stay there. And um, it was fun. And every song was. Never the same. they were like people. They all had their own thing, their own personality. And yeah. So you had to, you had to develop own, their own, that own song as their own thing. So that's what made it interesting, made it
0: fun. Hey everyone, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Tonalux and their brand new JC37 microphone. This is a clone of the old Sony C37A tube microphone, designed with producer choja Kareli, who was on episode five of the podcast. The original Sony mics were used on sessions with people like Jimi Hendrix, Dawes, and the Wrecking Crew. In my opinion, these new Tonalux microphones are great for people with small studios and home studios looking to invest in one really great tube condenser mic. Unlike a lot of tube condenser microphones, these Tonalux mics are incredibly versatile, can be used on guitar amps, snare, kick drum, drum overheads, vocals, and almost anything that in a lot of situations a normal tube microphone couldn't handle the sound pressure of. And because you can get these microphones right up close to a lot of sources, They're great for recording in in ideal spaces, which is what I do a lot of as I have a portable recording studio. And another great thing about them is even though they're hand-assembled in the USA, these mics are a lot cheaper than a lot of classic tube microphones as well. You can get a pair of them for the same price that you could get a single tube microphone from a lot of other manufacturers. Please visit tonalux.com forward slash product forward slash JC37 to see more information about them. Thanks for listening and now back to the episode. I know you both came in a few years after they started. So were you kind of shown that this is the Motown sound and this is how we do it? Or were you given more freedom in terms of what you could do?
2: Well, it was it seemed that way now, now that you say that, it seemed kinda of seemed that way at first, you know, this is what we for. But when I started working with Barry, it was, you know, the gloves came off. We did what we wanted to, you know, and, and whatever there's no set formula for each song. Each song was an individual, and that's how he approached it. You know, and, and he understood that, and uh, and he he loved doing that too. He said, "What am I going to do with this song now? This is a brand new song we am working on. What are we going to do?" You know, and we start examining what the track could do, and you know the instrumentation and this and that and the vocals, and it just. Uh, it was exciting doing that kind of a thing because you were creating something from scratch, basically, you know. And uh, so the, the whole, you know, cookie cutter type of thing is gone, which is good. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and the spontaneity, I mean, it, it was a way of having mostly right brain rather than left brain. Yeah, yeah. Mixing. Mm-hmm. I mean today today they're lost in left brain. Oh God. Oh God. <laughs> well you they know, know where I'm from vocal vocal tuning that absolutely kills the phrasing <laughs> and they don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the, the, the QC test at Motown was to sing along with and dance to the record. And the mix, that was was how they judged it. And and the sing-along test is real interesting because a lot of contemporary stuff, you sing along with it and your your lungs freeze. (laughs) 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 And, you know, and the chances are if they'd just let the singer go, (laughs) it wouldn't have that problem. Or if they'd just, you know, kept one main take and yeah. fixed a few distractions.
2: It, it, uh, it's real bizarre watching it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, mixing was always, you know, such a challenge, too, because it's, there's so much you could do. You make one little change and everything changes. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's just infinite of the things that you could do with it. And I remember, you remember Harry Balk?
0: Yeah.
2: You know, when Harry was at ANR, um he got me to come into his office and he said that um Rare Earth had just finished a certain song. And he wanted me to just do a quick mix so we could see what it was all about. You know, what it was a song about? I said, yeah, sure. So I went into the, into the mixing room. And I really liked what I was hearing. I was just having fun with it. You know, just it wasn't gonna be, I wasn't trying to get anything, you know, just doing a fun mix, you know. So then it was remix, then the remix, then the remix, then the remix, you know. So finally I went to Harry and I says, I says I'm says, i lost. Why don't we just go back and listen to the first mix, the rough mix I did to see where we started from. So we you know, we get this thing going. So he said, that's a good idea. So we put on the very first rough mix that I did. And we're looking at each other and he says, that's the mix right there. Because <laughs> there was no pressure. It was, I was just having fun. I thought the song was really fun, you know. And, and it was, I, I just want to celebrate. That was the song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I did the
1: recording. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, that, that one was wild because Pete was just in a ruts about the vocal. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just going nowhere. And so I had him come in the control room, sing it in the control room with the
3: monitors up full blast, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he got excited. Sure, sure.
2: And then they insisted on doing the backgrounds the same way. Yeah. I just talked to Pete not that long ago, a couple of weeks ago,
1: <laughs> and oh. and son of a gun, there it was, and all of the the uh, the bleed. Mm-hmm. Gave, you, gave you the exact effect that people try to do now with delays.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and after after I got here I I learned some of what the old guys did. One of the things they did was they would actually put the vocal mic relatively close to the drums so that the bleed from the drums wouldn't screw it up. <laughs> And I had an occasion to try that Mm -hmm. and Son of a Gun it it sounded just like Muscle Shoals. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) It was like, oh, that sound. (laughs) 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 A few (laughs) few other projects I did, I tried aiming a cardioid condenser away from the drums and recording that as a room (laughs) mic. Uh And that worked great. Something about the you know, the weird frequency response to the back of the mic actually enhanced yeah, yeah. the thing. It was interesting. But but Celebrate was my first experience with that. And then later on, I discovered that basically headphones <laughs> throw people out of tune, screw up their phrasing, and screw up their dynamics. <laughs> it's like I've never found anybody that didn't give a better performance performance. Singing the speakers,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: and that's actually how the early Motown stuff was done.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's so many ways that you know you could go with that. You know, it's just it's endless. You know, but
1: performance first, I've, I think is a great lesson to me. <laughs>
2: absolutely, absolutely, get the performance. <laughs>
1: It's like it's all downhill from there. <laughs> but anyway, anyway it, it was an amazing place to work. And I I went to San Francisco after I had a chance to get a job at Wally Heider's. Mm. I'd also been offered a job in England working for Tony Clark.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: And... So I thought, well, okay, if San Francisco doesn't work out, there's England.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah, the, the band wound up firing Tony, <laughs> and that was the end of that. So I kind of got stranded in San Francisco, oh. but but had a had a great time. Ultimately, wound up working for a, a band called Quicksilver Messenger Service mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for years, and got my experience with Capital
2: in their craziness. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Motown was a unique organization though. Yeah. It was different from all the rest. It was just, uh, I, you'd have to be there to understand it. You know, that kind of a thing. And just, everybody just was like, it was a big team effort kind of a thing. You know, even the secretaries were into it. And, uh, yeah. There's so many stories with that. You remember Georgia Ward, Oh yeah, yeah. Um, one time um, when Kennedy was this is Barry Gordy's son, Rockwell, you know. When he was a kid. He was in he was in. This the Donovan building, and he was in one of the office where Georgia was, and he started messing with stuff on her desk. And he kept, she she kept telling him, you know, Kennedy, get out of here, I'm busy. And he said, no, want. So she took a ruler and whacked him on the hand. She says, I'm gonna go tell my dad. <laughs> Takes off. And she gets a call from um, one of Barry's secretaries, I forget who, which one it was, says, uh, Yeah, Mr. Morty wants to talk to you. <laughs> so she goes, Oh, I'm going to be fired for sure. You know, I hit this son was the ruler. So she goes to his office and he walks in and he walks in the door and he, Kennedy's sitting in there and he says, Yeah, that's the one, that's the one. And so Barry says to Georgia, says, says, Well, what happened? He says, Well, he was kind of Falling asking him to leave the stuff alone. And I just got a little mad and I whacked his hand with the ruler. He said, "See, see,
3: he, he hit me, yeah."
2: And Barry says, "Well, that's good. If he does it again, hit him again." <laughs> and he <Kennedy> goes, "What?" <laughs> and he gets like it. He says, "She's trying to do her job, and you're bothering her. I don't want you." <laughs>
1: One unique thing about Motown is there was no tolerance for ego trips. No, no, no ego no, trips. No, no. <laughs> that, that's one of the most brilliant things about it. And yeah. I was telling somebody about that once, and he he said, "Oh, well, that's because of his boxing background." Yeah. He said, "If you if you step in the ring with an ego, you're down. Yeah. Seconds." Yeah.
3: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh.
1: And so those lessons got applied to the music business. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's... it's.
2: Uh, he, was, he was a hell of a person, you know, to work for. He, he just um, turned you loose when you found out what you're capable of doing. He just, just go for it. I remember one time, I was still, before I moved to L.A., I was still in Detroit, and I got a call from him when because about half the company had already moved out to LA. And he called me. And he says, Yeah, we we just signed this, this new act and we did the recording and mixing out here. And I just listened to all the mixes. He said, I don't like any of the mixes, so I want to send you the multi and I want you to remix the whole album for me. I said, Yeah, sure. He says, anything particularly you want me to do? He says, No, just do what you think is is okay. You know, I said, okay, fine. I said, what's the name of the group? He says, we're gonna call them the Jackson Five. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So that that was the first album. You know, he sent me I I mixed that album all by myself in this room, listening to Michael. I says, damn this kid, (laughs) (laughs) he's good. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how he operated things.
0: Um, If it's all right with you, I think it'd be nice to get some more kind of geeky details about the recording aspects. Maybe if we start with the drums, were there any kind of standard recording techniques for the drums back then? Well,
2: and I think Bob will agree, too. It depends on the drummer, too. Yeah. Uh, You know, (laughs) we just have a set of drums. I remember one time I was doing a session and they had one set of drums, but they had two drummers because the producer wanted, for this first song, for example, to have drummer A play it, because that was more of this guy's style. And then drummer B be on the next song because that was more of his style of playing, you know. So we did, you know, got the sound in the first drummer. We did the song and you know, okay, okay, we'll go to the next song. The next drummer sits down. I just I had him play something so I could get it. I had to almost redo the whole setting because yeah. same set of drums, but the, just the way the person played changed the sound. Yeah. Tacked and everything else. So it was, you know. But um, uh, I remember one time. Was you remember Hal Davis? I Hal Davis didn't. He was. Uh, in
1: this was after he play, mostly one.
2: When... Yeah, Hal did a lot of the Jacksons. You know, and, and on and on. He was like another Norman Whitfield kind of a guy, and uh, he let me do anything I wanted. That was great. So we're getting ready to do this rhythm day, and um, it was a new drummer. I never worked with this guy. Big guy. He was huge. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was in the band with Pete, you know, Pete was very fanatic with drums, with his drums, the sound of his drums. So for years in the band with him, I got to know what a good drum sound should be because he was really fun. He even, told, he even taught me how to tune a drum, you know, tune the drums, getting overtones out and stuff like that. <laughs> So I'm getting ready to do this session, and so I'm, I go over this guy's drums, and I sat down, and I start, you know, working on it, getting the overtones out, and he comes up to me and goes, hey, nobody touches my drums. <laughs> I says, well, I'm just trying to, he says, no, nobody touches my drums. So I go over to Hal. I says, "Hal, I got a problem. I'm trying to get the sound, you get his drums tuned up, and Hal says, I'll take care of it. So he goes, tells the guy, he says, let him do his job. He knows how to get sound of your drums. Some, okay. He okay. Because Hal said so, he had to let me do it, you know. You don't say no to Hal. <laughs> <laughs> so I tune up his drums and everything, and then we finally, we cut the first song. We get the first song done. We get the good take, and when you do a playback Naturally, you know, the guys come in to hear the playback and make sure everything was good, you know. So we start playing, and, you know, and... Uh, those well-tuned rooms with the speakers and everything, you know. All of a sudden, I, I start playing, doing the playback, and I'm looking at the corner of my eye at this guy. And all of a sudden, he's going, <laughs> "Oh, he's <"There's> like, are my drums? <laughs> you know, he never heard them sound like that before." You know. And he came up to me after this. It stopped. He can. He shook my hand. He says, "If I'm ever here again, I want you to be my." <laughs> Because of Pete and the band, you know, uh, he was, like I say, such a fanatic. I had a reference. I knew what those drums should sound like, you know, and he had so many overtones. This guy had so many overtones in his drum. You know, and boom. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew how to get rid of them, you know, and uh, he was appreciative after that, so.
0: I've seen photos in the early days of them using three mics quite a lot. Is that something that went on or were you using more mics later on? As we got
2: up to 24 track and then eventually 48 track, you had to spread more things out, especially for the drums. Like you have a snare naturally on one track by itself, a hi-hat on track, you know, toms. And I'd have the overalls on like a stereo configuration. And... Um, <laughs> seven, eight tracks of drums. And this way, in the mix, if there's anything you want to change or try, you know, you, you have the freedom to do that. Whereas when you're an eight track, you were pretty much limited to, you know, you had to get exactly what it was and hope for the best. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, with the, with, with the multi tracks, you, you had more of a, you could spread them more so you could always. Make, make the changes later on in the mix if you wanted to yeah. Just narrow, although, of them. although they got
1: thinner as you spread them
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a thing
1: called gap scatter where the
3: yeah,
2: yeah.
1: they aren't really perfectly in phase yeah. and, and that, that one threw me for a loop because I, <laughs> I mean I love the sound of Two or maybe three mics. And then, you know, one over, one overhead, and a bass yeah. drum. And, yeah, yeah, and a, a snare. But the bass drum and snare are just kind of fulfilled Yeah, yeah. They're adding a little flavor. The real guts of the thing was the overhead. And yeah, yeah. and wow. Mm. But I, pl- I played with stereo drums. Actually, I took. I saw a picture of a Glenn John session and I thought, well, I'll try this. Mm. And so I was playing with, with having an overhead and one over one of the floor toms, facing the snare, split those left and right, and then bring the snare and the kick in into the middle. I, I did that for a while. Oh, the real one. We, we did these sessions... For Jeff Beck with Mickey Most, mm. and, and Most is saying, "Well, do whatever you want to do, but duck the symbols." Mm. And I'm scratching my head now. How in the hell do I duck the symbols? <laughs> okay. And it occurred to me, well, let's try putting the mic on figure eight, and lining the dead side up with the symbols,
3: mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. and I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> It sounded way better than the cardioid. <laughs> I did it that way from then
2: on. <laughs> Accidents are <sound> good sometimes. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And but but that was a most was an interesting. Car- that session was a trip mm. because Beck and Most were not speaking to each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the only reason they were there was because they both wanted to see Motown.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I mean that, I mean it was amazing. And actually Jamerson got pissed off and wouldn't work with him anymore. Ah. <laughs> and so Ralph got Babbitt on it and me engineering it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Beck offered Babbitt a job playing in his band. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. yeah. Babbitt was a hell of a bass player. Boy, would that have ever changed history! I, I,
2: I, I but was, I, he was, I was in the contract to Motown. <laughs> I knew Babbitt when I was in the band. He was in one of the—he was a band called the Royal Towns. you know. Yeah. They were coming up, and I uh, know him way back when. Young Babbitt, boy—you know—if he likes it, he likes to—you know—he'd kick your ass. Hey, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he's—he's
1: why I moved to Nashville. Ah. Uh,
2: he was living here. That's right. Yeah, yeah.
1: And this, uh, and I was one of the first guys on the internet with, with any real studio background. And this guy said, "Hey, I'm I'm working with Bob Babbitt. I'll put you in touch." And about oh six months later. I'd been working for a little label in San Francisco and had to work out a whole digital archiving system because we were just doing digital mastering. Basically, the projects were done on tape and then mixed to digital. And it was... Well, first the F ones and then the, the DAT machines. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to master that, and, there, and it was mostly home studios, so the stuff really needed <laughs> surgery. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, uh, I got into that and the archiving, and they brought me into Nashville to give a speech about archiving, oh. and how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so... While I was here, we hooked up with Babbitt, and and that was incredible, hearing about what all he had done after Motown. Yep. And then I also saw a guy I knew from the internet. His wife was singing with a group called the Time Jumpers. Mm-hmm. And they were, with their original bass player and drummer, they were. That was the rhythm section that Bob Wills would die for. <laughs> doing Western swing, and you know, it, I mean, it was like the bassy band with with fiddles, <laughs> and it completely blew my mind. I mean, i have listened to this thing. It's live, and I'm going, my God, we've killed American music. <laughs> And so between them and Babbitt,
2: we des- we made the move. Have you ever done any, like, TV work and movies and stuff? Scoring?
1: In the, not scoring. In the 90s, I actually did sound effects editing.
2: Oh.
1: And I actually, I was working for this guy, Andy Wiskus, who has a couple Oscars. And I set him up with a digital studio with digit design sound tools and ultimately Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. And the two of us actually walked Sound Tools and Pro Tools into Skywalker Ranch. Wow. <laughs> and they'd been using this New England digital thing that was like a couple hundred thousand dollars wow. a system. And, and it was a total total bottleneck because, oh, yeah. you know, if you hit a, hit a problem in the picture, all of a sudden you need to go from two guys to ten guys yeah. doing the sound. And they couldn't do that with the New England Digital. So they saw what we were doing and went, holy cow. So they, they switched over to that, and most of Hollywood switched over to that. And that was a whole bunch of how Pro Tools got in. Yeah,
2: yeah. I enjoyed doing a lot of T V work too because it was a different different than doing than doing records, you know. It was um, you know how you, when you do records, you know, you did a rhythm date, then you did sweetening and then backgrounds and then lead vocals, and everything yeah. was kind of separate word and in, in like TV or you know, on TV especially. It was pretty much the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. And um it was Oh, that's real I cool. I really I worked with uh, this one, this one producer, uh, director, rather, um, Steve Bender. It was uh, Diana Ross turned me on to this guy. Like, you know, she she was going to be doing a CBS special, and he was going to be directing it. And um, I had he needed something done real quick before this whole thing started, so she brought him into the studio, and I took me five minutes to do what he wanted. It normally, took somebody else an hour or so, you know. So he wanted me to do the project. So from that point on, I did all of his projects, and he was a hell of a guy to work with. And uh, he wanted me to do, the, I did the uh, Dinah Ross live in Central Park with him. And that's when they had the big rainstorm. <laughs> oh, yeah. 800,000 people in, in in Central Park. In about 20 minutes into the into the show, this super storm hit. <laughs> yeah. oh, so All this, you know work to get this thing going and everything and then this yeah, this happens. So I was sitting in, inside the, the production truck waiting for the rain to stop a little bit. And I went over to her they had a like a little motor home for her, for her dressing room, you know. So I went in there and, and she was just sure and I were there. I says, Are you okay because of all the work you're gonna go through and this should happen. And she says, Oh yeah, we'll just do it again tomorrow <laughs> And the next day so we did a second show. We were supposed to do a second show but because of the rain they and now, you know, let's do another show. And only 500,000 people showed up for that one, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That was a big experience that he did. Uh, the challenge of doing that show was just is, uh, amazing. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I
1: got involved with a radio station in, in Berkeley, California, where we were doing live music <clears throat> with, in a studio with four mics, and doing remotes with uh, well, I guess it was three ampex mixers, so it was twelve mics. Mm-hmm. But no EQ, no nothing. Mm-hmm. No headphones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of that. Yeah. And we were getting we were getting better recordings than most of these artists had been getting for their record. <laughs> 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 <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, that's where I became a total, totally gone on the old school. <laughs> also, I have a little insight into how Barry probably, this is a theory, but <laughs> how he got started in doing it the way he did it. Okay, he gets out of the army and he starts this jazz record store. Okay, his customers were all of the top musicians in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And Detroit had some of the best paying jobs for musicians in the United States because ABC Radio was centered in Detroit. And this was in the forties and fifties. So he had this incredible access to musicians. I mean, Joe Messina was one of the main guys Mm -hmm. in that scene. And from what I understand, he started recording in his sister's basement. Mm-hmm. But he didn't really have access to singers that could keep up with the musicians. So he started recording tracks in mono on a mono machine, mm-hmm. then taking them to either United Sound or Special Recordings to do the vocals. Mm-hmm. And they got into editing the vocals. And that was kind of how that whole layered thing. I'm pretty sure that's how that whole layered thing got started. Probably, probably yeah. You know, so, solution to a problem. And that, that was Barry's forte. And yeah the problem came up. He found a solution. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and it really... Uh, And we were, we had some innovation, too, from, I mean, from what I've been able to figure out, we had the first tape machines that you could punch in on. Mm. The three tracks. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Mike McLean had been reading the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers journal, and he'd read about this dubber, I believe it was at Glen Glen, the RCA build, if I remember the story right. And they had come up with this bias ramping thing so they could punch in. And so McLean adapts that to the three track. And all of a sudden we can punch in. Mm. Couldn't punch out. The only way you could punch out is you had to pull a head gate you got a loud pop. God. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Motown producers got started producing more or less line by line. You know, punch in a line, mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. go back and punch in the next line,
3: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> because they couldn't really insert, <laughs> and that that created this whole style of, of production.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, Frank Wilson, <laughs> Frank Wilson, Frank Wilson's first person I ever saw a compa vocal. Oh really? When we got the sixteen track. Oh, ah. Uh. It was uh, the, I think it was Eddie Kendricks. Oh. Yeah, he's sitting there.
2: I mean, he he, he was incredible. I I really liked him. Oh, yeah. Remember the song? Do you remember what song it was?
1: might have been Keep On Truckin'.
2: Yeah, because i mixed all those songs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was done long before it was released. If I remember right. Because, I mean, I remember working on it, and I remember it being released a couple years later or something. Mm -hmm. And that actually, the production
2: of that actually predated the disco thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Frank was a hell hell of a guy. I really liked Frank. I mean, 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 that was
1: a Colossally influential record between that and. Of course, the other thing is that Norman Whitfield's partner in crime was Milan Bogdan,
3: <laughs> <with>
1: <laughs> Motown. Yeah, yeah. And Milan's the one who started the disc- disco thing in Miami. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> so you can trace that to. Yeah. Norman mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I mean the influence these guys had over over music is, is staggering and, and I learn more about it all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. get stuck because Milan wound up here in here in Nashville
2: yeah yeah he worked for my brother Tar show
1: yeah but he passed away a few years ago I mean that's yeah. That's the scary thing, is that there are not a lot of us left.
2: No, no, they're gone. Whitfield, Cal Davis, Frank Wilson, you know, on and on. And on. Marvin Gaye. Yeah. <laughs> cal Harris. Cal, Cal's cal gone, too? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God.
1: Yeah, last year, apparently. Oh, my God. They're from Art Stewart. Hmm. Where's he has- Art he has- He's in Las Vegas. Oh. There's a big community of Detroit people in Las Vegas, mm. which is interesting. Oh. I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah, I didn't either before I got invited to stop by one time when we were driving across the country. Art went into television.
2: Yes, yes.
1: And Joe Atkinson wound up at CBS Television. Mm-hmm. That, that was a, a trip. He's gone. Uh, <laughs> man I hope I hope people interview us soon because <laughs> 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 these stories are I mean, the people who were there are, are diminishing rapidly gone forever all the stories mm. and hopefully I understand they're working on a documentary about Motown with Barry and hopefully oh good good hopefully that will finally come to pass because mm-hmm. that they he was gonna do a movie about it and then he wound up selling the rights to Suzanne depass. And then somehow the whole thing got stalled.
2: Oh, boy. Well, what you to do? do? But I'll tell you, those years there were incredible. And, you know, every day was something. There's never a boring moment there. You always said, I hey, looked forward to going to work. You know, I just uh, yeah. I remember this friend of mine. We were talking. This was in L.A. And um he hated his job, but it was good pay. He was married, had a couple of kids, and he had a mortgage and everything, so he's was kind of trapped. And I just kind of thought, I, says, I love what I do. I couldn't imagine, you know, just hating to go to work every day. I could imagine that. I look forward to it because every day it was different in a way. You know, yeah, you know, all the projects were different, and so you never had to repeat. You know, I just yeah, every song is different." Yeah, every song was different. Every song was like a person. It had its own personality and its own thing. And, you know, that's what you're creating. And uh, it was challenging all the time. It really challenged you, you know. And uh, working with Barry was, I, I had a lot of fun with him. <laughs> you know, I would just get into stuff. It was just unbelievable.
0: <laughs> so, a lot of Barry Gordy stories. Were they? So, so, ask
1: some questions. It's all right.
0: I'm very happy just to... <laughs> I'm very happy just to let you guys talk as much as you want. Um, okay. Were they still recording guitars, just DI, back then when you started as well? Either of you. Hmm. Recording guitars? Were they still recording them, just DI, Um, plugged straight into the console as well,
2: See, it depended on the song, too. Yeah. And if you wanted, you know, it was really, there was two ways you could go. You know, you know, go direct, which is a clean sound. You know, if you go, you could micro-amplifier, but each type, different type of amplifier had a different zone sound. Or you could, you could do a combination. You could record direct and mix it together with the amp sound. And so a guitar had infinite amounts of sounds you could go for. So you really were judging by what the song was going to be about. The type of sound you want to, you know, make out of the guitar part, you know. So it, um, you had a lot of options to work with, and uh, and a lot of it had to do with the guitar player, too.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, mind boggling the difference. Oh, and the same guitar setup, same mm-hmm. guitar setup to a different guitar player, mm-hmm. it will sound so
2: different, it'll blow it, your mind. It's just like the drummer thing I told you about, yeah. You know, same set of drums. Nothing was changed. Same thing. And different, piano. Different sound, you know. Piano's
1: another one. I used to hate the kind of mushy sound of that Steinway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In the studio.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, one day I was doing something for Ashford and Simpson. Valerie Simpson goes over to the piano because there's a little figure she wants the pianist to put in the track. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden I heard one of the best piano sounds I ever heard in my life come
2: out of the monitors because that's the way she played yeah it the wasn't anything else. I was doing the and everything else was totally different than the other. you know it made a big difference I mean blew me away yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was like oh <laughs> oh boy
0: now yeah. Did you help build a lot of the equipment they used, like the DI boxes? I've heard were built by Motown.
2: Yeah, we had um, some of the direct boxes. Did McLean do something? Well, we had we had some direct boxes that they would hang off a speaker
1: because they were trying to sound contemporary. See, one thing to understand is that in many respects, we were trying to not sound like Motown <laughs> because everybody was afraid that it was a fad and it was going to go away. <laughs> and so by the time I was in the studio, that was that was very much the, you know, we were trying to not do things. But uh, as hard as we would try, it couldn't help but sound like Motown. Because <laughs> it was the players. <laughs> uh. Likewise, I tried the same methods in San Francisco and it was a complete dud. Oh yeah. Yeah. Didn't work. Well one brilliant thing about the guitar thing is that McLean built this really he called it a guitar amplifier. It it was a a little mixer of four or five inputs and it fed a Macintosh amplifier and an Altic monitor speaker. And the guitarists would and the bass player would plug into that, and they'd get their own balance, and then that stuff would all come up in the patch bay for us to,
3: mm-hmm.
1: to use. Yeah. And one of the things that I discovered with Babbitt when I was hanging out with Babbitt here, he said, "How in the hell did you guys get the, that bass sound?" <laughs> well, I remember recording Babbitt stone flat. <laughs> no yeah know nothing because he played so even. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so I invited him over and we I, I set it up that way and it kind of blew his mind. It was like, oh you <laughs> weren't doing anything
2: to it. <laughs> well the musician had a lot to do with the sound. Yeah. Just the and and train. and the, the ear to finger
1: uh relationship.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: In other words, if, if, the, if a player is, is hearing a guitar, but a direct is being recorded, it's not the same
3: yeah. as
1: if the player is actually hearing a, a monitor speaker. Mm-hmm. It, it changes their touch. Yeah. and so And so it's true to what they're hearing. Sure. You know, if they're using guitar, usually the microphone on the guitar amp will sound. But if they're using an amp, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's like there's there's an integrity to that feedback loop that's a pretty
2: big deal. It's like, again, it's the same with the drummers. You know, you have different, same set of drums, different sound. You know, yeah. it's, it's so much depends on the person itself. Yeah. Or even different song, 10 minutes later.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had to, Mm -hmm. I mean, now that we have infinite tracks, I set up every microphone I would dream of using (laughs) on a drum kit and sort it out later, (laughs) because I know something different is,
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: and, and haven't had the budget to do anything slow, so so you know if the musicians are being paid here today you basically want to get four to six songs in three hours Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know boom 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 Mm -hmm. so leaving lots of choices to sort out makes a big difference i mean that's That's a really cool thing about modern technology. The other thing that's really cool about modern technology is there's no reason every artist can't now record every gig they do with a laptop. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And why more of them don't do it is beyond me. (laughs) Because, man, you edit that stuff together and you'd have way better records. (laughs) You know, the human beings do it. Okay, next.
0: (laughs) Was there anything different about recording James Jameson as opposed to other bass players?
2: Mm. Not really. Maybe, you know... A EQ maybe or something but uh, you know again
1: yeah well he needed some compression yeah. see the thing about James is he he hated the electric bass
2: yeah he was a stand-up bass player
1: he, you know he, yeah and he would not spend a dime on having it intonated or what have you and the way he played is he literally pulled every note into tune mm-hmm. And that led to some inconsistencies. <laughs> but I mean, he was he was amazing. Yeah. And, and I mean, he was basically doing a jazz improvisation on what a doo-wop bass singer would do in the song. I mean, I've, it's the only way I've been able to kind of analyze it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And most of the producers came out of doo-wop. Oh, yeah. Those days, yeah. And actually, the successor to doop is rap. Mm, yeah. Music that poor kids who can't afford instruments and lessons <laughs> <to> create. <laughs> Duop was all vocal. And yeah. And then the had discovered you could use garage sale audio equipment, and mm-hmm. be a DJ, and then you could have your friends rap over it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's really the same kind of a thing. I, I just wish there was something new now.
2: Yes, thank God. Yes. I
1: mean. <laughs> I mean I mean, rap came out in the 70s. I know. You
2: know and, rap, and some of the rap, you put a C in front of it. it comes out crap. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, as it progressed through the years, it did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> more and more.
2: Yeah.
1: And it, I mean, I just. Wish, well, I wish there were the paying gigs for people to be on stage, because mm-hmm. that's where you get good.
2: That's right. That's right.
1: And if, if there were the paying gigs, and there are in Europe, by the way, mm-hmm. just not in the U.S.
3: Yeah.
1: But if, if there were the paying gigs where people could get that direct audience feedback about what's working and what isn't, we... Because that's what's missing today
2: is that stage experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you figure most of the Motown acts, that's where they came from, the stage. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, well, and we cool. band. I was in a band for 13 years, and especially the last few years you we were in clubs and everything. We even played the Peppermint Lounge in New York in 63 when the Peppermint Lounge was the biggest thing in the world, you know. They had us do a show at Yankee Stadium in front of thirty-five thousand people. Was that? That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, but still, it was you know. Yeah, you know, and everybody was young. Yeah, yeah. I yeah.
1: mean, I mean, that's the other thing that's missing is we don't we don't really have. And the youth seem to be kind of going for for rap. Mm-hmm. But now they go to recording college. <laughs> I had something hilarious happen shortly after I moved to San Francisco. They had me on a recording academy panel. Oh, really? Yeah, and all of us had worked on some real big records. And I'm in the green room, and I said, Why us? What do we have in common? We started talking about it. We realized every one of us had worked on our first hit record before we were twenty.
2: Yeah. Ah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, youth. <laughs>
1: uh, oh, I mean, that's. I mean that, that was an amazing era. Mm. In in the U.S. The, yeah. The well, the armed forces trained a massive number of musicians, and a massive number of musicians fled Europe for the US during the war. Mm-hmm. And so we had this incredible talent pool that was really unprecedented in the 40s and 50s. And in the 60s, we had all the students of those musicians. <laughs>
0: I am twenty, so I've just missed the um, missed the cutoff on the <laughs> first hit. What were some of the EQs you were using back then? Uh,
1: well, <laughs> well, Motown, and, yeah, Voltex and and Lunderman Graphics, Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. and the Motown version of the Logiman Graphic.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, McLean he took them apart and he kind of put his own thing in there and made his own EQ systems. I recall. Yeah, well, it
1: was just a larchman with a, a yeah. with an amplifier because a mm-hmm. regular larchman had about fifteen or twenty dB of loss. You mm-hmm. had to patch it around, and go through a bunch yeah. of changes. Yeah. So he just put a makeup amp in and, and a volume control because they figured out that you could really screw yourself up if something was just louder and not <laughs> <necessarily> better. <laughs> And the longevens would crap out. The ones with the sliders would crap mm-hmm. out all the time. Yeah. And so he got these expensive mill spec switches, <laughs> <laughs> and made them indestructible. And mm-hmm. still a bunch of them going. Yeah. I had him at. They have two of them at Blackbird Studio here, and Mike came. Down here, he lives in in uh, Asheville now. Mm. But he drove over and took him into Blackbird and showed him ridiculous mic collection and and showed him the mixers, mm. the the EQ the equalizers. Uh-huh. It was it was interesting because they had been, I mean, they were black. It looked real different, <laughs> but it was clearly the same thing, and somebody had just re refinished them. It was interesting. Although, he, he said he blew the design. <laughs> he said he screwed
2: up the design. There was something he would change now. <laughs> Nowadays, it's all digital. Everything's digital. Yeah, today. Yeah. Which, yeah, Who knows, you know, it still comes into the, you have this one piece of equipment that is probably the best ever though, it's it's called the ear. (laughs) you got to satisfy the ear, and it doesn't matter what you're using, you know, because you can get out of it. (coughs) Yeah, the problem,
1: to me, the problem with digital is you have got more signal processing on every channel than we Mm -hmm. had the whole control room.
3: Mm
1: (laughs)
2: Sometimes it just single mm-hmm. process it to
1: death. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. You know, just, yeah, and you tend to go overboard and compensate for the speakers mm-hmm. you're listening to. Yeah. 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 And it's great, except it only sounds good on those speakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, I mean, undoing. am I do mastering work.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and 90% of what I'm doing is undoing. EQ
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was one thing remember you you knew Guy Costa. yeah and uh, Guy was um, my boss yeah he was was head of uh, studio operations and Guy and I you know we were like four days apart in age he was he was Italian from Boston I'm Italian from Detroit so we became like brothers you know he was just a very smart guy you know And um, soon after I came to LA, I forget what kind of boards we had in there when I first got there, I forget. They're quad eights. Yes, the quad eights. Then I wanted to upgrade on all three studios to put the Neves in and redesign the control rooms. So as it turned out, every control room was identical in size and equipment. So if you're working in one studio one day and you have to go to the next studio the next day, it's like exact same room. Same dimension, same size. I mean it just it was perfect. And those knee boards were wonderful. Love those boards. You know, I'm just uh it took almost a year because we'd do one studio at a time. So we could still we had the three studios. So because uh, they had to rebuild the whole control room. put the needs in and all the wiring and everything and those rooms were flat as a board you know I mean what you heard is what you were getting good technical staff there too which is very important <laughs> yeah.
0: how did the live rooms differ between Detroit and LA uh,
2: they were different you know it's, it's um, I don't think you're going to find two rooms in in the world that are the same you know A little bit of, you know, dimension difference or whatever is going to change it. But um, uh, there were, the LA studios were, you know, they were acoustically really put together well. So there was, you know, you you could get, there was no standing waves or whatever, you know. Yeah, but but the studios in LA were just really great to work in because they were just so technically put together so good. Yeah. You know,
1: the control I, rooms were were really exceptional. Detroit, the control rooms weren't really about anything, yeah. but Studio A acoustics, mm-hmm. the Hitsville Studio. I was just there last
2: year. Is superb. Yeah, and I remember that one time we were doing this TV special, The Temptations and the Four Tops, or I think it's for Showtime. And one of the, we had to do different locations, so we went to Detroit and we're going to do like kind of a mock up in in studio A, I mean in in, in Detroit. And Levi Stubbs, lead singer of the Four Tops, you know, we we walked in to the old Pittsville thing. We're standing at the top of the stairs looking into the studio. And Levi turns to me and says, Damn, it's small. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But it's it's the best small studio I ever worked in. Yes, yes. And unfortunately, the last month I was there, I discovered the ultimate trick, which is to get the drums out of the studio. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Improved it. I mean, it took it from really good to, oh my God.
2: (laughs) Put them in the ISO room, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was for vocals and stuff. I mean, in that studio, you can you could have a singer five feet back from a microphone still be, and not lose presence. That's right, that's right. Because it was, it was an RCA design. Mm. It was an RCA design, but the same guy who did RCA Studio A here in Nashville, and that, that is the same case. The only difference is it has the curved, Walls instead of the cheaper to make ones that they did in Detroit, but they did them. They they did it with the designer's approval. Yeah, said this will probably work about as well.
2: And it. it
1: I mean, I don't think. I don't think most people appreciated that room until they went somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. But that was true of Motown, too. Oh, yeah. really appreciate Absolutely. it until, yeah. until he went somewhere else.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have any tips for working with Bleed in smaller rooms like that?
2: Well... In L.A. we had these big baffles you could roll around and, you know, you could kind of control how much, you know, isolation you want. And uh, never really had a problem. Never really had a problem. And um, that, that's why I like that studio so much, because it was, that's what you had, you know, and you work with it. And there wasn't any really major thing you could you could control your own if you're doing a vocal or whatever, you know, doing a rhythm date, and, and um, you could isolate what you want to isolate really well. And uh, sometimes, if you want a little bleed, that's when you got a little bleed, you know, big deal. So, that's what you're going for. We had those options. Yeah.
0: What kind of reverbs were you usually using? Back then, well, let's see. In
2: Detroit, they actually had some live chambers that they built up in the in the attic. Um, in L.A., when I first got out there, down uh, you'd have to know the studio set up, but there was like a down basement kind of thing. It's not really a basement; it was like a hallway, <clears throat> and they built live chambers down there. And then um, as more and more digital came along with reverbs and stuff like that, those kind of went to the wayside and they made those rooms into um, demo studios. You know, do some demos and working on writing songs down there. But um, there were so many different reverb things. You know, Remember, remember the old spring stuff? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> You're <Yeah. their> wild. <laughs> you want to make an explosion, you kick the thing, and it's boom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, there's EMT plates, I think. EMT,
1: EMTs, every, yeah. every studio had yeah. at least one EMT plate. At least. At least.
2: Yeah. yeah. And at that time, it was a good thing. Yeah. You know. Oh,
1: there still are.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: for all the. I mean, it's funny. The guys here have been telling me that that some of the local studios had a reputation for their echo sound, mm. and it really was an EMT plate. We right. told everybody it was a chamber. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh boy! Is it true you were the first people to use parallel processing on a vocal?
1: I don't know. I don't know that we were the first. I mean, we were early, for sure. Oh, well, the idea was stolen from Deutsch Grammophon how they did classical, from what I understand. <laughs> but I think... You know, I think there were, were other setups for it, but we, we I mean certainly we were we were very early at almost everything. I mean I mean it was a an awful lot of innovation. I was I got to Wally Hyders in San Francisco and was frankly shocked by how primitive it was. <laughs> Relative, uh, you know, well well Motown it, it seemed funky because of all the home brew stuff. Uh It was really very advanced
0: for its time. If it's all right with you, let's like kind of go through some different artists. Maybe you can think about what first comes to mind, kind of working with them. Maybe start with Marvin Gaye. What first comes to mind?
2: I got a funny story that happened with Marvin and Diana. Yeah. Ah. They were two of the biggest artists in the world at the time, too. So they're going to do a duet album. And um, so the tracks were cut first, and all the tracks cut first. Then came time for the very first vocal overdub to do. So both of them are going to be there. And, you know, this is a, the songs were romantic songs and, you know, one of them sound like they're in love and everything. so Barry is there too, naturally, and Guy is in there with me. And so it was just, this is a big deal. Marvin and Diana doing a vocal session together, you know. So Marvin goes out to the, into the studio, and he sits in his chair, and Diana's inside and talking all of a sudden. She goes out there, and naturally, Marvin wants to smoke a joint. <laughs> <laughs> so he's sitting there smoking a joint. And Diana gets all pissed off comes in and says to Barry he says like don't want to be out there with that smoke out there blah 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 so Barry says okay he's put in the middle so he gets on the talk back and he says to Marvin he says uh, Marvin um Diana doesn't want you to smoke you know, that weed out there right now you know she doesn't like that and you know, whatever whatever so Marvin sits there being Marvin gay kind of looks up and he says then I can't sing <laughs> There's Barry in the middle, you know? Diana one side, and Marvin the other. So we ended up doing the whole album separately. She would come in and do uh, a whole complete track, you know, get, get her vocal from top to bottom. Then Marvin would come in and do the same thing, a complete track. So when I mixed the album, I was like, okay, so the first verse on this song, I think I'll give it to Marvin. And then, you know, maybe on the chorus, put them together. And on the second verse, I'll Have Diana do the second verse. So I had to pick and choose how to, you know, put it together. The album went to number one. (laughs) Everybody thought, "Oh, they were so in love. They sound like they're so in love." (laughs) But Marvin, that's Marvin. Hey, what are you going to do? Marvin was Marvin. (laughs) He was a character.
1: So he was pretty into line by line when I worked Mm -hmm. with him. Oh really?
2: Yeah. No. No, I worked with them. See, I didn't do a lot of vocals because I was mixing all the time. Yeah. So when I did vocals, it depended on the song, you know, how the artist would approach it. And, and uh, what I really enjoyed, wasn't with Motown, though, but the, the studio, where we had open studio, you know. So it was Whitney Houston I was working with a lot. And she was great to work with on vocals because she would just nail those things. And, you know, okay, let's put another track up and try it again just to you could come later because every track she did was great. So you, you know you're you're picking from great to the better. Well, that's the life, Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, are, every every track was good, and you're just trying to find look at the first verses, listen to the differences and stuff. And, you know, so she was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed working with her.
0: Do any stories come to mind about Stevie Wonder? Stevie, yeah. Stevie. Stevie's great. Well,
1: <laughs> the high point of my career was the night we did the vocals for It's a Shame. Mm, mm. This was his first production. Mm-hmm. Barry Basically, both Marvin and Stevie wanted to produce, and Barry made them each produce somebody else first. Ah. And in Stevie's case, it was the Spinner's. Ah. So, you know, this was the test. And so Stevie says, GC Cameron was the lead singer on that one. And he said, well, okay, take it up to the vamp. I don't want you to burn out on the vamp until we, we get the whole thing. So we hit the first take, and GC absolutely nails it. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody in the room's jaws on the floor. <laughs> because we found out in two and a half minutes that number one, it was a hit record. And number two, Stevie was going to have a career as a producer songwriter. Stevie's <laughs> 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 an amazing person. I mean,
2: he's just so cool.
1: How does it get better than that? <laughs> oh, so and then they, went th- then they went through and did the... Uh, did the backgrounds. I got a little creative. I set up a microphone to feed the live chamber and mixed a little bit of that in the backgrounds and I had them move around. So at each of the... There were one, two, there were four, I did four passes of, of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And each one was a little different.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I did live mixes to... So we wound up with two background tracks. Mm-hmm. It was actually four. And I marked the others to be erased. I found out that they never were. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, that 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 got that, that huge vocal sound. They were they I mean they were one of the very best artists. Oh they were great. And yeah. somebody used to laugh about how yeah, yeah, Barry has them open for the Supremes. <laughs> Put them on their toes. <laughs> <laughs> really?
2: I to follow these guys now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were,
1: but but that was Stevie and I did a bunch of work on on his last Detroit album, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was real interesting. Yeah. It, it, I mean, he's. He is the hardest working person I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's not even necessarily the most talented, but, oh, my God, his work ethic is
2: Mm -hmm.
1: killer. In fact, I got offered a job replacing Margalev and Cecil, (laughs) and I turned it down. (laughs) It meant moving to L.A., and I knew it would be 20 hours a day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the guys who finally took the job, uh, they wound up hiring some more people.
3: Mm. And
1: so he was working with shifts of engineers. (laughs) 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 Mm. Absolutely amazing. And he would record, I mean, at any given time, he'd have 20 songs going. Mm. Oh, he's constantly And and finish a couple a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it, it was it was amazing, and of, of what he recorded, I I suspect only a very tiny percentage ever got released. Probably, probably, yeah. Because you know, his approach was do ten songs, and we'll put out the best couple. That's right. Well, no. and that was I. I should mention the. Dean Taylor told me about this thing Barry did. He figured the odds of a hit record was two and five. Mm-hmm. And so they would basically record two out of every five songs written, and they would finish two out of five of those. Mm-hmm. And then they would release two out of five of those.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, of course, the good news was that it was unprecedented. I mean, about two out of five of them hit. That was right. That's right. the thing. But the, the, the negative side of the thing was the uh, a whole lot of stuff, really good stuff got left behind with that process. And I turned the English guys, I, I went to, I visited EMI in 1969, in the summer of 69. I spent a week in London. And I explained how the whole quality control process worked to them. And I told them, go through the old albums. There are hits in there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And a few months later... Tears of a Clown came out in England, ah. soared to number one, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think they redid the bass and a couple things in Detroit, and put it out in Detroit, and there was Smokey at the top of the charts, oh, Yeah. a classic Smokey record, yeah. <laughs> after he'd been yeah. trying to under
2: he the He actually called me in his office, and he, he played me the rough. You know, one of the seven and a half songs. He says, "I want you to mix the song for me." I had a lot of fun in that song because of the, the content. Yeah, a real circus sounding, and then going into an R&B feel, and then, you know, just the, it was an enjoyable song to play with. <laughs> you know, just the, the way it was done, the arrangements and everything.
1: Yeah, I think it was Hank and Stevie actually. Hank and Stevie and one other person, I think, wrote it mm-hmm. and produced it. So it was a little unusual in that it wasn't a smoky production. Yeah, yeah. But that, that totally cracked me up because they had apparently done what I told them they could do and found a hit. And I think there are probably more of them to this day.
0: What about the Temptations? Uh, guys,
2: <laughs> what can you say? Yeah, really. <laughs> they were fun to work with. I mean, uh, very talented guys. And uh, uh, Whitfield, to, like the big majority of all their stuff It was this group. And um, I remember one occasion, doing some TV special, some local um, TV special, forget which what it was. And, um, you know, so everything's pre-recorded, you know, the, the music, you know, the band and everything. And you also pre- you pre-record the backgrounds. Even though you see them on stage, you know, you do the the, the, the vocal is done live to tape on stage when they're shooting the show, but the backgrounds are pre-recorded. So it was like 10 o'clock in the morning the guys had to come in and do. It was a, a medley of their temptation songs, to, to pre-record the background at 10 o'clock in the morning. They had just worked the night before, so they were grumping. Why are we here so early? Why don't they do? How scheduled this? And they're just you know just bitching and moaning that they had to be there so early in the morning. So I says, okay, you guys, everything is set up. All you have to do is go out there and just get this. These you know the songs. You had copies made so you could study it. Just go out there and just nap, nail it and just get out of here and go back to bed. Yeah, you're right, okay, yeah, yeah they're grumping and grumping. So they get out there, get them set up, and they're they go. And all of a sudden, they turn into the Temptations. Bam! <laughs> you know, one take. They nail those backgrounds like so they would, you know, just, well, they knew the songs inside and out, you know. So they come back into control and they're, you know, there's kind of smiling. He says, you guys, he says, you know what? you're trying to make me feel sorry for you. You go out there and you kick ass. <laughs> yeah but they were very talented guys and um, they knew how to get what they needed.
0: What about Supremes? Which ones? <laughs>
2: <laughs> the Originals with Diana or
0: yeah. later on? Yeah, with Diana, I guess. Uh,
2: again, wonderful people. Mary Wilson, you know, she's been to her house with her husband, really, really you know, just um, just good people and very talented and very dedicated. And, uh, uh, and, you know, and then they had to go to the studio to do vocals. They were on it. You know, they wanted to do the best that they could. And uh, they're, you know, professionals is the best way to, you know, to put it. They're pros. And uh, they knew what they had to do, and they did it. And good people on top of it.
0: Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've already mentioned a few stories, but what about Smokey Robinson?
2: Smokey was great. Oh, I'm, I'm very, very good friends with Smokey. I'd go to his house, we'd sit in his kitchen and eat and sit and talk and laugh. And, and um, <clears throat> again, very bright person. He knew how to get what he needed to get done. And uh, he was actually vice president of Motown. Because he was, he started off basically with Barry when they first started the company. And yeah. Smokey wrote a lot of new songs, the songs that, you know, the first hits, like we shop around and stuff like that. And um, so between Barry and Smokey, that's what was the old beginnings of Motown right there. It wasn't for those two together, that was, to yeah. Smokey, you know. It they,
1: have never been a
2: Motown.
1: Yeah. So I understand Smokey talked Barry into starting a record label.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Probably. Yeah.
1: They had they had done one record with United Artists mm-hmm. on Marv Johnson, and it was so bad. The payment was so bad that they actually framed the check and put it on the wall as <laughs> <laughs> a reminder. <laughs> it, it was was like a top ten record and oh. they got like a hundred and fifty bucks or something.
2: <laughs> oh <geez>. another <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, people that made it, it was wasn't you know, it was just the people, the just different combinations of talent there that yeah, you know, it just worked. It worked well, you know, and, and again, you know, contributed this to Barry them all loose. You know, you're a you writer, write, you know, go for it. You're a producer, produce, you're a ranger, you know, arrange, you know, just go for it. It's, don't put any limitations on yourself. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. I remember in the publishing office, they had their own carbon of the letter that had rejected the Beatles, framed it <laughs> on the wall. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, they were the only ones that rejected the Beatles. Oh, no. Now, I remember, who was it? Uh, what company was it? DECA, I think. DJ wound up. I think they went to DECA mm-hmm. and they, you know, were trying to get a, a, a deal. And, you know, so they played on some stuff. And the guy, the head guy there, says, didn't want them. And he says, and besides that, guitar music's not going to stick around anyway, you know. And so all of a sudden, boom, they become the Beatles. Like, this guy's still probably looking for a job. <laughs> 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 the millions and millions of dollars that he could have generated for the company.
1: And Voyle Gilmore, the guy who was the head of a and at Capital at the time, told me that the Beatles made it in spite of, of, right. of right. capital and EMI. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I saw this, this picture online. The Beatles playing in this club to 18 people. And this is a year later, they'd be world known. So you never know. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> there's, well, there's the stuff so, I've seen yeah. recorded from, they were good. Oh,
2: good. Oh. I mean, you remember Billy Preston? Yeah, he played a lot with the Beatles under, like, on uh, I think the Abbey Road album and stuff like that. They considered him the fifth Beatle because he did a lot of the keyboard works for them. And Billy would tell me stories about these guys. He said John used to make him laugh all the time. And you know. <laughs>
1: yeah, I got That's to a do comment. a little gospel work with him in Oakland. Uh, Billy? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, did. I didn't. I mean, I was. The back in the truck, and he was on stage. Uh, yeah. Didn't really get to relate directly, but uh, yeah. he
2: was a great guy. I did a lot of stuff. I did a co-produced album with him one time. And um, what a keyboard player! My god, he was probably one of the best keyboard players you could ever see. He was amazing, amazing on keyboards.
0: Maybe lastly, the Jackson Five. Any stories come to mind?
2: Oh, there's a ton of Jackson Five stories. Yeah. Um <laughs> they were just uh you call them, you know, the kids are gonna be here today. <laughs> they were just vocals, you know. And uh Michael just was so talented. I mean he just as a kid, you know, he just and he would sit next to me in the control room, you know, what's this do, what does that do, and how does that work? He was so into the makings of, you know, how all, all this equipment, what does it do, and why is it there, you know? He was just so inquisitive, you know, and um, they were just a bunch of nice kids. They were really good. They were very talented, and they, when they came in to do their vocals, they really worked hard, you know, and... Um, songs they, they look at look what happened to them you know they became very big so they were always a lot of fun to be around they were just went to their house for a couple of parties and stuff and uh, um, just nice kids nice 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 guys I really liked them I really had enjoyed them I always had fun with them you know, the kids are coming in today <laughs> <laughs> oh boy
0: can you think of any of those stories that you mentioned?
2: I remember one time, yeah. This is a little later on. My daughter was at the studio with me this one day for some reason and she got to know them really good and she was 8, nine, ten years old, something like that. I was just a kid. And um, Michael wanted to go out and go up to this corner store to get some ice cream. And uh, so about three or four of the guys were going to go get some ice cream. And so Michael asked, you know, if, if, if Christy want to go too? Yes, you know, said, Christy want to go get some ice cream? And she says, okay. So Michael started putting on some, just, you know, sunglasses and stuff, disguise. And she says, Michael, what are you doing that for? She says, oh, I don't want anybody to recognize me. She goes, Why? She couldn't understand. To her, that was Michael. That wasn't Michael Jackson. It was Michael. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was pretty funny because she just was so innocent about it. You know, well, you know, why are you doing that for? You know, and because he could never go out to public, never. And uh, you know, always have to put stuff on so he wouldn't be recognized. You know, and. What a shame that was! He didn't. He never knew what it was to be just a normal person, you know. Just to go into a yeah. I remember, Jim? I think Jermaine was telling me one time they just went to a grocery store. Um, Jermaine went, went in and said he'd slip the manager a few bucks when they closed, if so they could come anyone. Have Michael went and look around. So after the store closed, they went in there. Michael's walking around, just, just. Amazed at the aisle after aisle after aisle of foods and frozen foods and vegetables and just on and on. You know, we go to a grocery store, it's no big deal to us, but to him, it was he'd never been in a grocery store. He couldn't imagine all this food under one roof, you know. uh, So fame had its drawbacks. (laughs) You couldn't be a normal person, you couldn't go anywhere. It's a shame
0: what do you think the biggest misconception about the Motown sound is?
2: Good question. <laughs> I really don't know how to answer that. But
1: well, it was all these people in the relationships.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, they could get together today
2: yeah. and there it would be again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It was the people. It's like, It was like a well-tuned motor, you know, and the way it was put together, this motor was put together. If you put that same motor together with the same parts, you could get that same effect. Same effect and and hits.
1: Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. would be different,
2: but it was always tempered
1: by the top five and billboard.
2: That's right. That's
1: right. You know, the rule for getting a release was it had to sequence with the top five and billboard. (laughs) Or
2: they wouldn't put it out. The Motown sound was a conglomeration of the people that was involved from the the musicians, the artists, producers, engineers, arrangers. It was that combination that put all that together. The songwriters. That was just, uh, that probably never happened again like that. It was, who knows? Uh, hopefully it will. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> and soon.
0: <laughs> <sighs> well. My last question for both of you is, can you pinpoint one or a few records that that you're the proudest of?
2: Mm, boy, that's a good question. There's a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. A lot of them. Jeez. Hmm. That's a hard question to answer because they were all something. They were all special, and uh, that's what made Motown that they were all special, you know. And, and uh, it was the effort of not just one person or two people. It was everything. It was the whole Motown thing. That made it that way. The musicians, the rangers, engineers, producers, salespeople—they got um, legal people. I mean, just it was that machine that put out that that product like that. It was because of that machine that product came out. So.
1: And Barry Gordy
2: put that machine together. Absolutely. He was yeah. the mechanic. He was a mechanic that built that machine.